Welcome to No Challenges Raining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. The Indian Wells tournament is over. The year's fifth Grand Slam has been played and completed in the deserts of California, where I was, and where our dear guest host today, NCR's Dutch Lowlands and Caucasian Highlands correspondent, it's David Avakin again. David, nice to see you again over Zoom after many lovely hours together in the desert. How are you doing? Great. How are you? I hope your trip was okay, that you made it all fine. Eventually, yes. I had a 48-hour delay leaving the desert. I was supposed to leave on Thursday morning and got to the airport, got to the gate, got everything, and then they told us our plane had a mechanical problem, and then they told us our plane had no mechanic, so it wasn't going anywhere. No, but you made it back. You made it back for a great match. I mean, it was meant to be. I I made it back for Nadal and Kyrgios later that afternoon and the nonsense that followed in the press conference (laughs) and and, and for days later, (laughs) really, in that match, the classic... not a shock that that match of all things would turn out to have have some lingering scent to it. Uh, yeah, and then I stayed for a couple more days, the women's semis and stuff, and then finally got home. It was only three more hours delay in Chicago on the way. So by by my standards, three hours. Easy. I, I also got delayed for 24 hours on the way to Australia this year. So I've had horrific flight luck so far in this year. 77 hours of roughly, or 75 hours of total delay so far in two trips. So uh, looking to not have that on my way to Florida uh, tomorrow. But I am looking forward to here wrapping up the tournament that was in Indian Wells. Let's start with the finals. Let's just, we're going to go backwards. This is a post-wrap tournament, even though we didn't do one during the tournament, unfortunately. Let's start with uh, the men's champ, Taylor Harry Fritz of San Diego, California, winning his first Masters title uh, in a final that some people thought might not happen, given the sort of buzz before the match about Fritz's ankle issues or ankle and heel injury. Still not, I don't know if we have a diagnosis yet for what exactly was going on with his lower right extremity there. Uh, but he was had a very short practice that lasted less than five minutes in the, in the morning and then came out heavily taped, but apparently feeling good and played in the final against Rafael Nadal, who was on a 20-match win streak, but himself was having some, some injury issues. It seemed to be something in the sort of left pectoral rib area uh, that, were effect- that started affecting him late in his semifinal win over Carlos Alcaraz. Anyway, not a pretty match necessarily, but had some good moments. Level was, was okay, all things considered. And Taylor Harry Fritz wins it in a second set tiebreak to become the first American man or woman. That surprised me. The woman hadn't won either. Mm-hmm. I guess it makes sense with the Williamses having boycotted for over a decade. The first American man or woman to win Indian Wells since 2001. One of the longest American droughts at any tournament anywhere. Mm-hmm. Certainly at this level. David, what did, what did you make of, of this match and of, of Taylor Harry Fritz emerging as a uh, Masters champion here? First Masters of the year. Yeah, I would not have called Taylor Fritz being the guy to stop Rafa's streak Mm-mm. going into this tournament. I mean, unbelievable surprise, uh, let's face it. And and all things considered, also what you mentioned, the fact that maybe the final wasn't going to be played in the first place, considering Fritz's uh, situation with his ankle. But yeah, it turned out that Rafa was more injured, in a way. Well, maybe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he talked extensively about uh, having trouble breathing, uh, but some kind of a stabbing pain that he felt, mm-hmm. and like with every move that he made. So it's a little bit unclear at this point what the issue with Rafa was, but, but the Fritz story in itself was nuts that he was not able to play, according to himself, according to his team, according to his coaches, who all said, don't do it. And he then mentioned that he uh, was selfish, combined with his very high pain tolerance, um, he made it to the court, like he had to play. And once he stepped on the court, miraculously, he felt no pain at all. So eventually he played and he beat Rafa. 
on some those are some good drugs. And yeah, it was one of those things where like they were showing on tennis channel, which always shows the ads. It's gotten way too absorbed in gambling stuff. They were showing the odds for Taylor to win were were very very bad. You know, yeah. but then he comes out and gets a quick double break for love in the first set. And sort of like, what, what is happening in this match? Uh, and then it settled down, but he was still, you know, just ahead. And then that second set, I believe, went on serve the entire way uh, to the tie break, uh, 12 holds. And he got the best of Rafa there as well. I mean, his game is is good. And he's a tall guy who is, can really flatten out on the ball in these high bouncing desert conditions. Um, and the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let's not forget, he had all the opportunities to choke in mm-hmm. that second set. Like, Rafa was ready. A lot of break ready, points. A lot of break points. Ready, he was like, here's the, the red carpet, please choke it away. But he didn't. Fritz was yeah. there, and he played uh, incredibly well in the big moments. Yeah, very impressive. This is going to be a big moment of hype for, for Taylor Fritz in American American tennis circles in terms of being dubbed the next great American men's hope. We've been, you know... Andy, uh, sorry, John Isner was asked about, you know, sort of, because a lot of American men made it through to like the fourth round or so in this tournament. There was a, a good amount of people pushing through to the third and fourth round just in terms of quantity of, of players with good wins by Jensen Brooksby, who beat Tsitsipas, Tommy Paul beat uh, Zverev also in a wild one. Um, both those matches were decently wild. Tiafo had an okay run. Steve Johnson won a couple matches. I mean, like it was a, it was a good tournament for for American men, for sure, uh, across the way. I know Pelka had a good run, too, and Nisner had a, had a good run mm. as well. Pelka made the quarters, lost in it all. Well, I know this is going to be a big deal for Taylor. Taylor is one of the stars of this Netflix show that's being filmed. He's certainly going to be hyped up for that. Um, he's getting to be more and more of a sort of protagonist of American tennis coverage. Mm. He will be, I'm, I'm sure, you know, for the rest of this year. And he earned that by beating Nadal in a, in a Masters final. I mean, that's not undeserved at this point. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious for your sort of more international perspective, like what you make of Fritz, and I guess of the sort of of generation of, of him. I mean, he's in a generation with with Opelka, with Tommy Paul. The three of them are very close buddies, and then also mm-hmm. Francis Tiafo is also in that group age range wise. Jensen Brooksby fascinates many people as a player. You know, what do you make as someone who's not invested in American men's tennis as a Dutch tennis reporter? What do you make of uh well of this I, of this group? I'm invested in, in tennis in general, so automatically okay. I'm also invested in, in the players on the tour. And there's sure. many Americans as you said. If you look at that group that you mentioned, I think actually that Fritz out of those is maybe the the one with the least of a profile for some reason. Because Opelka, like, recently has come out with all these statements and all these thoughts that he has. Uh, TFO has been a very charismatic character for for a longer time, I feel. But mm-hmm. F- Fritz, I don't know. Actually, he, he doesn't really have a have a profile, I feel, here in, in Europe at all. So for him to be the first one, I guess, to, to break through makes sense as well because he's been playing so well. Like, everyone who's been watching and following the tour for the past six months w- would have seen how well he's playing. So it made sense, in a way, that the breakthrough was upon us. But yeah, I think American men's tennis in general, the European view is big servers, big forehand, poor backhand. Uh, like, that's kind of the cliche mm-hmm. that, that lives on. But yeah, I mean, if we take Fritz, all those things don't really apply because he has a very good backhand, for example. He has a great serve and a great forehand as well. But it's it's a little bit shifting, I feel like. The American men are, are playing a more all-round game that they're given credit for. Yeah, certainly someone like Brooksby is completely moldifying in his game. That was very funny, actually. Did you did you uh, hear Rafa about the American men? He was asked no. about this in press, and and to actually the same question you were asking me now was asked to Rafa, and he was quite detailed, and he had this little segment in his answer uh, talking about Brooksby, 
about how much he likes his game and how much he expects and like the unorthodox style that he has and doing difficult things easily and like you should read it up it's it's very funny and it's very funny to hear Rafa talk about Brooksby in detail like that yeah I think it's a lot of the people who have seen Brooksby are fascinated by Brooksby I think if anyone who has pretty much and Riley Pelka talks about his fascination he's just a huge Brooksby fan Stan even of Brooksby and he he's obsessed with him and thinks he's great and entrancing and all these wonderful things and he had became the most I've, the most wonderful Brandon moment of the tournament is when out of nowhere, Jasmine Paolini, who had beaten Arena Sabalenka <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the second round, um, one of the bigger women's ups of the tournament, <laughs> said, it's like Brooksby once said, or something about it, some quote yeah. about just trying to get the ball back. And yeah, Brooksby's influence is, is known, and he's, a, he's an interesting, interesting character for sure. Um, yeah, but Taylor Fritz, yeah, you're right. He doesn't have the sort of game. No one ever described his game as one-dimensional. I mean, he's, I think he's actually a very sort of... Um, pretty player to watch in a lot of ways aesthetically i think his his strokes are, are pretty nice looking almost reminds me a bit of a, a burditch maybe in some ways not quite you know not, not the same build necessarily but like something about just being clean off the ground you know sort of easy power for the most part i um, think his backhand sort of, is really wonderful yeah 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 absolutely no his his both his parents were tennis players um he's raised from a young age doing that and, and he yeah he has a, a game that you know, lights up well. And he has high ambitions for himself this year as well. I mean, I interviewed him in Australia and he said his goal was to be top 10 for the year. And that obviously has helped massively by winning Indian Wells. So on yeah. pace for sure. Yeah. He's up to 13 now, right? Mm -hmm. In yeah. the rankings. Yeah. I just wanted to say something about the parents. You mentioned them and I got the chance to, to speak to him afterwards for the Dutch broadcaster I was working for in Indian Wells. And, um, and I asked him about like who he's spoken to since he won the title and like which encounter so to speak was the most emotional that he that he'd had so far and he mentioned his father saying that he from a young age he was taken to the Indian Wells tournament by his dad and that he would one day win it is what his dad had told him and and while he was saying that he got a little bit emotional he 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 broke a little bit but then the interview was over but it was good to see him being so so emotional i guess about and caring so much about what he did yeah yeah it's a nice definitely moment. Yeah, definitely an emotional win for him, and and we don't know what his health is going to be like with this with this ankle injury. How much of it's just adrenaline getting him through, whatever sort of numbing agents he had. Um, not optimistic he'll play Miami necessarily. But he's still in the draw. We'll see how it goes. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, but certainly longer term prospects for him are are pretty good, and he's a you know solid enough player on the other surfaces as well. Made a French Open junior final back in the day. Uh, well, well, Wimbledon juniors as well. I mean, I'm not sure about his pro Wimbledon results being that great, but he's not awful in Europe, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And he can he can sort of push closer to the top 10, I think, uh, over the course of this year. And it seems like a, a totally reasonable expectation for him now with this with this start. I think he's like three in the race or something mm -hmm. currently. So absolutely is in there. You mentioned we mentioned the Netflix thing briefly. You were, you were telling me about this sign <laughs> posted outside that I apparently missed the whole time I was at the tournament. Uh, warning media that they were subject to be filmed uh, yeah. for this Netflix show at any point they were in the press room and probably anywhere else in the tournament, honestly. And I had this in Australia already. The Netflix crews were already in at the Australian Open in Melbourne. They were there as well. They're following Taylor Fritz has been one of their protagonists, so we can tell from early on. Uh, Maria Sakkari, who made the women's final, also 
one of the Netflix characters. We don't know how the show is going to shake out, how much the show will actually focus on these people, but they're certainly mm-hmm. getting footage for the, them. I saw some people saying, and I don't think this is really right, but they thought that like sort of the injury drama of the Ben's final was played up for Netflix purposes. I don't, I don't, I don't really buy that. But I'm curious if you if you've sensed any change in how tennis is because Netflix is around. Ooh, that's a difficult question for me to answer. I, I we can look at the players, like how they behave, I suppose, around these camera crews, because there's many yeah. cameramen around. Fritz Fritz said that he would have had when he hurt his ankle in his morning practice. He said on Tennis Channel he would have had a bigger reaction if he hadn't been on Netflix. He said he tried to keep his like sort of like pain and shout his like scream of, of pain mm-hmm. like quieter because he was on camera. He was conscious of that while he was on practice court. Okay. So that was interesting. But that's yeah. him trying to be cool and like keep it, you know, not be overdramatic. Yeah, know. but it's it's tough to ignore because like I I had a couple of interviews with with Zachary and Fritz and those guys, the, the camera crew and the and the sound guys were quite aggressive. I'd have to say, like they would stand right next to you, like put the camera in, in my face even. It's not even about me, but and 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 move around the like the mic whenever I would move myself. So. They're there. It's hard to ignore. So it, it has to have some kind of effect on the players. Yeah. It can't. Yeah, my, yeah. my aforementioned one on one with Taylor Fritz. Or well, I didn't say it was one on one. I did one on one with Taylor Fritz after he won his uh, third round at the Australian Open to make his fourth, first ever fourth round. He wound up playing since Foss lost in uh, heartbreaking five setter. But anyway, my, my interview with him for the New York Times was all filmed by Netflix. I, yeah. They asked if they could, and I said, yeah, sure. But, but yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be on the show. When it comes out, Netflix, I'm happy to be uh, shown in the episode about what amateurism the players have to deal with, because uh, <laughs> during my interview with Zachary that was filmed by, by those people, I forgot to press record. And then <laughs> mid-interview, I had to, I had to do it. And it's, it's all on tape. It's Outstanding. all on tape. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the opposite of amateurism, consummate pro rye, failed at all, made the men's final, uh, got up to 20. Big win over fellow Spaniard Carlos Alcaraz. Very easy match to sort of romanticize and write about, and mm-hmm. all sorts of easy narratives available for that one. Gets through that match. Very, very grueling, long match. Well over three hours, despite having none of the sets even reach five all. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, it was it was really, really a kind of a, a battle and a slog and, and slow, windy conditions and just pretty brutal match. And all makes it through that, loses to Fritz. Like I mentioned, the, the injuries, and we'll see how he does. He wasn't, already wasn't planning on playing Miami. He pulled out before Inhale Wells started. Next enter, enter, next tournament he has entered is Monte Carlo. Um, hopefully that is time, you know, in a month to recover physically for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but Rafa's had, had a good run um, as well. You also interviewed him for speaking of people you interviewed. Um, what, <laughs> yeah. what do you make of Rafa's run? And I guess also that, that Alcaraz uh, Nadal match. We can cover Alcaraz in this part as well. Like, what do you make of that sort of narrative of, of Alcaraz as this clear Nadal successor? Is that accurate? Is that kind of a cheap, easy narrative of they're both from the same country, they must be the same, or do you see actual, you know, parallels between them? I think there are parallels um, in terms of the energy that they bring to the court, mostly, mm-hmm. um, because it's insane. I think those people who haven't seen Alcaraz live, it's it's pretty insane, the amount of energy that that guy, that guy brings to the court. And and that combined with his, his great technique and with his, his speed, it's really a sight like to see him in action. Um, and in that way, it might be similar to, to the way Rafa was when he and, just and crowds love him. Crowds love Alcaraz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's so, he's so good with his English, surprisingly. His English is, his English is very it's solid really good. For, yeah. for a Spanish 18-year-old, 100%, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- that story writes itself. 
right? They're both from Spain, and, and that's the Spanish newspapers uh, headlined the, the king against the prince. Like, that whole thing is it's just, it's there to be scored, that goal, so to, say, so to speak. Um, yeah, and it was a great match. Like, that's what you wanted, especially after the first one they played in Madrid a while ago. That was nothing. That was 6-1, 6-1, I believe. And now we had a real match, and, and Alcaraz was ready for it, and the crowd was into it. Yeah, like, what more can we ask? It delivered. And interestingly, if you look at the way the match was played, the windiest set, the second one, was won by Alcaraz, mm-hmm. interestingly. Whereas Rafa is, is obviously the one of the best, if not the best, wind player. He did lose that one set. That was interesting. Yeah, we I've talked many times. We talked many times on the show about the wind at Indian Wells. And Courtney was at that match in 2009. Whereas Ivanareva and Ivanovic played the women's final, it was like unplayable. <laughs> and if you mm-hmm. see, the clips from that match are ridiculous. But Indy Wells often does have this this rough, rough win. I don't know if there's anything to do about it, short of building a roof. And I don't think they're going to build a roof for that. Maybe they could. They certainly have the money for it. Uh, but usually you get roofs for rain, and there's no real rain to speak of in the desert as an issue there. Yeah, but it was tough. It was this was one of the windier editions of Indian Wells in terms of having multiple days really have have wind issues and. It, yeah, it makes makes matches a lot tougher that, you know, right from the first or second day, I guess, Stevens Osaka match was really, really windy. Mm-hmm. That was that was a highly anticipated match that really just became about managing the wind more than anything. Yeah, but it's an interesting test for players. And a lot of them have played wind before and Floridians, you know, where many tennis players are have grown up in wind. And yeah, it, it makes for tough to watch tennis, especially for something like Alcaraz and all where you just want to see, you know, these two at their best. And it's frustrating when they're not. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've said this before, and if you wanted to, ch- I know you, I think you said you wanted to challenge this. I think Indian Wells, personally, conditions-wise, is some of the worst on tour. Between the wind, the extreme wind, which often derails matches, the really thin air, which lets balls fly a lot and just have high unforced air accounts constantly, and then the really slow courts, which get even slower at night. I think it's just a place that has not produced... Compared to Miami, which is two weeks later in the same part of the calendar, I feel like Miami has tons of like epic matches in Miami history and probably also a lot better crowd energy uh, with the whole Miami uh, flavor there compared to Indian Wells, which I just feel doesn't really have that. Considering the fifth slamminess of it all, I think the actual matches are not uh, not great. Um, I will also uh, agree with all the things you said, read the conditions. But I will mm-hmm. disagree with the fact that there's a lack of great matches. Um, because if you look at last year, if you look at Azarenka Badosa, that was great. If you look at team against Federer a few years back, that was a great three-setter. If you look at Federer against Del Potro the year before that, those were all like well-fought three-set uh, battles. So yeah. I think it's um, better by the final. I think by the final, players have figured out the conditions better. Mm-hmm. But like those er- that opening weekend at Indian Wells, or the early rounds were just, I think it's I think it's rough. Yeah, I mean, there's no player who you hear say, oh, geez, the conditions here. Oh, these courts, oh, how I've missed them. Or yeah. or the balls. I mean, Rafa took, like, on, like, he wasn't even asked, but he started started talking about the balls being not what he wanted them to be. He started talking about the wind, about we, we don't have a rule for wind. Like, if there's an X miles per hour wind, we should just not play, maybe. Um, so there's a lot to be said about the conditions being suboptimal. Definitely. Absolutely. So as much as the tennis parrot, and <laughs> to mind to carry all our Spain and Sub-Saharan Africa correspondent made a joke about this on Twitter, saying as much as they call it tennis paradise, the tennis is 
hard to get in the court, you know, the ball sometimes. So that's mm-hmm. not very paradise conditioned. A couple other men's things before we move on to the women. More in full. Speaking of, of last fall's tournament, Cameron Norrie, who was defending champion mm-hmm. there. And has had a really, you know, quietly solid run for marching towards the top 10 also, along with Alcaraz and and, and Carlos, uh, and sorry, and Taylor Fritz. Uh, Norrie made the quarters this year, lost to Alcaraz there in the quarters. He had previously this year won Delray and made the final of Acapulco. So he's really showing that Indian Wells title uh, was not a fluke, even though I think it was like the first ever Masters tournament where no semifinalists were in the top 25. It was a wild draw that really collapsed. Um, but he's backed it up well. Um, mm-hmm. It's not clear that Indian Wells was a lot appreciative of his effort. I will say he got the much better mural of the two. The murals at Indian Wells are baffling. <laughs> They're, it's Larry Ellison really likes this artist who makes sort of like Sharpie drawings on black ceramic tiles, tiles and they're yeah. they're they're pretty awful honestly they're they're very few redeeming qualities to them they don't look like the players his Norris is much better than paula bedosa's which look nothing like her whatsoever it looked um, fine but just not like her <laughs> yeah it looked, it looked like a person but it's not a person yeah. who's a real person and but Norris was, was on the scale of the indian wells murals was actually pretty good um anyway he gets his mural and then the tournament puts him out on court five to start his title defense which is one of the you know, worst court is court five, and they really do go kind of in order. It's still NBA a stadium, Wells. but it's it's the small well, everything, one of the everything, ones. everything yeah. is a stadium in any Wells. All the stadium nine, they're all the, no, but like it's it was an outer court. Like, there's no like on court interviews or anything out on court five. No. Um, so it was a pretty inauspicious beginning for him. He didn't make it to the main stadium until his fourth round where he played Jensen Brooksby, and that was probably because Brooksby's a Californian more than anything mm-hmm. uh, to do with Cameron Nori. Um, yeah, kind of. Nori was, you know, expressed some, admitted some annoyance at this afterwards, saying he was not ha- thrilled with that. And he noted that Paula Bedosa asked him about this, and he said that Paula Bedosa had, uh, which wasn't picked up correctly in the actual transcript, weirdly, but I had to correct it. Um, the transcriptionist, I guess, was just baffled that he would suddenly start talking about Bedosa in the middle of his answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> called, like, they called it, like, but always in their official version. I was like, that's not, no, it was Bedosa. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. What do you, I guess, this idea is a Wimbledon really concept really in the sport about like defending champion men's defending champion always starts the Monday uh, on center court as the first match and the women's on Tuesday. Uh, I think the women's by the way, a wildly lesser honor being like the fourth or fifth match to play on center court. It doesn't mean much, but the men, the men get a nice honor at Wimbledon for defending champ. Do tournaments owe defending champ something like should Cameron Norrie have been, was he right to be aggrieved by his, his assignment? I, I think, I kind of think yes. I think you put him on stadium for the first match, and then you can kind of, you know, put him on like three or something. But Well, he was put on three to play the rematch of last year's final. Yeah, the re- exactly. The rematch of last yeah. year's final against Basilashvili <laughs> was on three. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, like, owing is, is a big word, but it's, it just doesn't cost the tournament that much to just put him in the first round or if he has a bye in the second round on stadium court because... At least on two... Like two would be like I'm, okay, yeah. two's a five. Five is a statement. Yeah. yeah, five is saying like there are like I don't know like twelve matches on the men's side we think are more valuable to us than yours. Defending yeah, champion, enjoy your mural. Yeah, I mean maybe they forgot that he won. <laughs> <Last year. laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I I didn't forget. I've I've become quite a fan of Cameron Nori after watching him from up close in Rotterdam this year. Like I I really paid attention because I was a bit critical before, and I've. Turn around completely. He's really impressive, especially if 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 you really get to watch him from. Uh, what what impressed you? His footwork mainly. So may maybe 
you really need to see him on a small court where you can really see him from up close to get to appreciate him. And in the big stadium, you just can't see it. You just can't see what makes him so good. There you go. That's a very positive spin on it. I just want to give people that up close Nori experience. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of people, another quarterfinalist for this tournament, uh, Nick Kyrgios, uh, was a wild card, had a great run to, to the quarterfinals, beating uh, his sort of uh, jokey nemesis uh, uh, of clay court discussions, Casper Ruud. I don't know there's actually really any, any beef between them to speak of meaningfully, but it was clearly a match that Nick was fired up for. Nick was very excited to get to beat Casper Ruud, uh, which he did 4-4. Four and four. He made it to the, the quarterfinals, played really well against Rafael Nadal in that match, and uh, came close to you know winning it, I think, fair to say, and, and certainly had his chances. Really melted down in the first set tiebreak, which he lost 7-0, kind of tanked the sixth point, and the seventh point was a, a point penalty for an, an audible obscenity uh, that he received. And, and yeah, and then the match was good, and then obviously what happened at the end uh, he loses, he does a handshake with Nadal, and he spikes his racket into the court, and the racket goes bounding up uh, all the way into the back wall of the court, uh, right over the head, or right would have been at the head of a, of a ball kid who had to sort of scurry out of the way last second to avoid getting getting hit by this racket. It's a pretty, you know, sh- shocking piece of video. The, the yeah. person who filmed it, because uh, it wasn't shown on TV, but the person who filmed it and got the angle, you see the whole trajectory of the thing, is uh, quite, quite striking. Um, Nick was not apologetic for this in press whatsoever. Um, it was a weird scenario where he got asked, <laughs> he got asked about it in the very first question of the press conference, uh, which I think was probably not the way to, to play this. Um, and his reaction, he was very, very, you know, appalled by, by mm-hmm. this line of questioning and felt offended by it and aggrieved and was mm-hmm. mocking and hostile and, uh, you know, <laughs> towards the reporter for asking it. Uh, but then after, you know, within an hour or two afterwards, he put out this, you know, social media apology and said he found the kid and posted screenshots of the, of the conversation on Instagram with the kid and then at the ball kid. And then the next day he posted a video of him giving a racket to the kid. I mean, he just tried to give him a racket before, which is a little higher velocity, honestly. (laughs) And, uh, and he posted this video on, on social media again and to show it. it was very short interaction. And he was talking about how he like made the kid's day. It was the coolest thing that ever happened to this kid. I don't know. I mean, I think this fits into the continuum of tennis players <laughs> not having a lot of regard for other people's safety. That's these broad strokes and, mm-hmm. and sort of making uh, reckless choices in, in, during these pandemic years of various kinds. Nick was quick to point out, and I completely agree, this was not anywhere near the sort of incident that Zverev and Acapulco was. I don't think we've talked about Zverev and Acapulco, actually, since... I don't know if have done a show since then. But, mm-hmm. you know, people obviously know by now... Alexander Zverev, you know, violently slashing with his racket at the chair umpire, um, hitting the sides of the chair um, after a double loss, and he got um, defaulted from the singles in that tournament as a result. And, you know, after an investigation, they decided not to suspend him, but they did find him guilty of a major offense or something, so he's on probation now. Uh, This was not like that. This did not have the same sort of malice, but it did have, you know, remarkable recklessness. And also, Kyrgios did, again, accidentally um, hit a kid with a ball pretty hard. Um, during a doubles match at the Australian Open uh, where he spiked a ball and went to the crowd and, and hit somebody uh, for mm-hmm. a dead ball that he just sort of slammed for no real reason. The stands off, off the bounce, it bounced. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but anyway, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, what the takeaways are from this, but uh, it was just sort of just like, oh, here we go again with the with the men's tennis. One thing I will say, 
with Zverev is that by not suspending, by not actually actively suspending him for a couple tournaments, making him miss part of the tour, the precedent is really generous now because like nothing is suspendable at this point. If what Zverev did is not over the line, like the line is somewhere pretty crazy. Because mm-hmm. in any normal sport, throwing a piece of equipment like that at a person would certainly get you suspended from like hockey or something like that if it came that close to hitting a kid. Yeah, no question about it. But tennis is not normal. Men's tennis is not normal in this no. way. No, I mean, absolutely. This Zverev thing was, was something entirely different because it was so deliberate. I mean, he was looking the umpire in the eyes when he was doing what he was doing. Yeah. Um, and this thing with Nick, as reckless as it is, as it is he what that racket did after bouncing is something I've <laughs> never seen to fly all over to the other side of the court. But look, it can happen. So it was not intentional, but the crazy things happen by mm-hmm. accident, as we've also seen in Australia, as you pointed out. So at the same time, if I'm not against racket smashes. Like if you feel like you should smash a racket, do your thing. But I guess if, if an accident happens, then it is on you. Um, you, you can't be saying it was not intentional and therefore it's fine or it's not punishable or whatever. That, no. that doesn't work that when way. When you make it a projectile, you know, you're, you're yeah. in, a, in a stadium with 10,000 plus people in it and some of them on the court, like you're taking a big risk there. And this yeah. is what happened to Djokovic at the U.S. Open in 2020. Exactly. Yeah. Like Djokovic, again, there was no sense that he was aiming for this woman, that he intended to injure anybody, but he was reckless. He was careless and it yeah. hurt somebody. It hit somebody and... and you know, hurt her in that moment. And this was in that same category of, of, of things. And so, um, yeah. And Nix was more clearly in anger, I guess, than Djokovic. Djokovic was clearly annoyed when he hit the ball uh, after getting yeah. broken. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, just, you know, we've seen this a bunch in, in, in tennis and players should should do better with if, their Yeah, if, if, you, if you draw a line once, then, then players will just stop cracking exactly. their rackets, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's a it's a tough one, and the presser that you mentioned was pretty wild. Um, also filmed by Netflix, as far as I uh, remember. Um, yeah, and he makes good points in that presser because it was very interesting. Many of the things that he said, but I guess if you, if you would read it out, like you would say, yeah, that makes sense. It's just sometimes the way that he says the things are a little bit interesting. Like I too agree that he is good for the sport. But mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he should be the one saying that he is good for the sport. I mean, that's just maybe a personality thing. Like <laughs> saying about yourself how important you are is yeah. is, is something that I would not do. <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, and, and maybe a little bit talking about the media trying to, to tear him down again uh, just for the sake of tearing him down. I mean, we can't agree with that, I think. It was clear that Nick's opinion of the racket thing at least changed once he saw the video or once someone on his team saw the video of what mm-hmm. happened. Like that, that changed things. And that's when the apology came out. And if the press conference had been after that, I think it would have been a very different tone to it. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, a couple other short, last wrap of the men, I guess. I, I've alluded to this before, but Jensen Brooks, we beat Tsitsipas early in the tournament. Uh, Tommy Paul beat Zverev. Gail Monfils beat uh, Daniel Medvedev in the, in the third round in a, a pretty sizable upset or maybe fourth, fourth round, maybe actually, but what, um, third, I forget, whatever early, what does this, so all, adding that all's injury, what does this portend for sort of the, the prospects for, for men's tennis for these next few months? I mean, Djokovic, uh, is out of any walls in Miami because he's not getting vaccinated and still required to enter the U S 
Um, he pulled out late. It's another thing that crazy thing that happened in this tournament. Djokovic is getting in the draw. It's crazy when like he can't even get in the country, but he's in the draw. That was crazy, and I think he will get fined for that by ATP. For a, there's a late withdrawal rule. Like if you if you okay. have, if have yep. bad, a bad reason for pulling out late, which I think his reasons are terrible. If he needs you know government policies to change to be able to play, um, mm-hmm. that will not hold up. So he probably is looking at some sort of, I'm guessing five digit fine. Um, for his late withdrawal in Indian Wells, and you know, unbalances the draw by doing so like that. Um, anyway, wh- what do you expect from these next from from Miami? And without getting too granular into what the draw looks like, but just big picture, like Miami, the clay season up ahead. Um, I think Rafa's. You know, we'll see how bad this injury is. I think Rafa's still the guy who I would pick to be French Open favorite at this point for sure. Um, uh, but beyond, for the younger guys, I don't. I don't really know. I don't know how it's going to go for them. I don't know how much, how Medvedev's doing. I don't know how much, you know, hitting, uh, number one, the same week that the flag gets stripped off his, his ranking, you know, or the mm-hmm. ATP profile and, and all this stuff in tennis. I don't know how that affects him. Um, he, he lost number one. He's, he's not number two this week. He'll get it back. If he gets the semifinals in Miami, Djokovic reassumed it. <laughs> Federer mm-hmm. funnily moved up a bunch of spots in the rankings this week <laughs> yeah. too, to like number 26, uh, which is, which is just amusing. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, what, what do you make of, of sort of direction of men's tennis right now? It's, it's starting to feel meaningfully more open in some ways. I mean, because of the strange circumstances surrounding Djokovic and now Rafa also being insecure, what his future holds. Um, but otherwise, like in normal circumstances, I wouldn't say that anything has changed until the opposite was proven. I still would say that Novak is the guy to beat. Hmm. I, um, but yeah, we just don't get to see that battle against him or, or his fight uh, to, to stay at number one. Um, but yeah, I mean, you would you would think that Medvedev would be the guy to jump into the hole. But again, as you mentioned his situation is weird with with the whole uh, Russia Ukraine uh, conflict uh, at the moment, so it it's just interesting because it's unknown what's going to happen. Um, it's open; it's as open as Miami has been, I think. Yeah. And for the clay, obviously, if Rafa's injury isn't too bad, then he's definitely the guy to beat, as always. And he made it quite a funny remark, I thought, or like an interesting thing that says maybe a lot about him was that he kind of regretted that he couldn't go into clay with a with a clean uh win-loss streak mm. that kind of that kind of bothered him a little bit he, he did mention it like that was ah like shit that that they that would have been cool no it's, yeah. it's good when these guys admit that doing cool things is cool you know like mm-hmm, for sure being 20 and 0 like and it's one of those things like rafa is like agent you know i saw him the first time i saw him and and uh and he was, he was like 15 and oh oh my god we're 15 and oh like and rafa would never say that but like his team is obviously very aware of like yeah you know the stakes around him and stuff and anyway yeah so but the players do care about the streaks they do care about ranking and stuff like that um speaking of rankings let's move to the women we have a new wta number two in the women's field it is Iga Fiontech, who wins india wells moves to number two maria sakari the runner-up uh, could have been number two had she won the final. She lost the final. She's number three now. Uh, big shift in the rankings, actually, because we see, you know, Sabalenka falling a bit, who'd been a pretty strong number two, it felt like, for a while. She's had a bad start to the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that early loss to Justin Paolini was rough. She's just, you know, obviously been kind of a mess in different ways. Um, she's, you know, probably affected by the same thing with Medvedev, you know, the stuff going on with Belarusian and Russian players, it's a chaotic, you know, war going on. So it's it's not an easy time for people in the affected directly affected countries, for any of that. Uh, but Shviantek, who also spoke out early 
about uh, Ukrainian refugee situation, which is a big thing in Poland right now. You know, millions of people flowing into Poland from from Ukraine, uh, massive crisis there. Uh, she it's hard to transition from that to tennis, but she looked very, you know, solid and and very uh, very clean in her game and just like really really like kind of the alpha player out there right now. Like she just has this way of of being both aggressive and controlled of mm-hmm. playing attacking tennis. It doesn't look risky. Um, that was, you know, not that some of what we saw her do when she won the French open in an absolute rampage in 2020, like she can just sort of take control of matches and, and gain control. And she's so good in these finals. Like her record in finals is crazy. And some really lopsided scores. This was her first time in a masters 1000 final to not have a bagel set in her favor. She got a six one against <laughs> soccer, four and one. Uh, yeah, but I, I'm just super, super impressed by her. And I think that she, is a, a really deserving, you know, she's number one in the ra- race right now. Uh, she would be a deserving number one if and when she gets there. Um, mm-hmm. And who knows what Barty's schedule will be like this year. Barty pulled out of India Wells in Miami. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm just, I just think she's super duper. I, I, I don't know what else to really say about Iga, but I, yeah, I'm just very, very impressed. And I think she just seems to have a really good base going on right now. Her team with Tama Fedorovsky, who was a longtime coach of Advanska. Um, and, you know, Daria Bromovitz, who we've had on NCR, who's her, you know, much talked about uh, mental coach and sports psychologist together. Mm-hmm. They just seem to have a really solid thing going. And who knows what, you know, what sort of obstacles they'll hit as she keeps going. And, you know, life is unpredictable. But at the moment, it's it's really it's really, really good. She's she's unbelievable. And yeah. like if we look at the tournament, she started off a little bit slow, maybe because she had like three matches that I she lost the first set in if I'm not mistaken, and then she won in three, and then towards the end she she just won comfortably all her matches um, in straights. And she's just so solid, as you said, and, and she's so controlled at the same time. And um, Courtney has pointed out many times like how high her break percentage is. Like It's so easy for her to break against the entire field. She's over like 50% towards 60% if I'm not mistaken. These are like Irani like return numbers because Irani was yeah. a rare player who would win more than 50% of her return games. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and Irani paired that with horrific serving and mm-hmm. Iga's serve is not that bad. No, it's great. It's great. And and you mentioned the coach uh, with Korovsky and they've really kind of made a change in her game and like they've they've said it like they, they want her to be more aggressive than she's been even more mm-hmm. aggressive in a sense like to, to maybe make her into a little bit more of a of a typical ball basher at times. Like if mm-hmm. you need to go, you need to go. Like go go like stand on the on the baseline and just go for it without thinking too much about about that and a variety or whatever. Sometimes you just need to hit the ball hard, mm-hmm. and she's she's ready to do it and she's doing it so well. Um, and also, as you mentioned, uh, Abramovich, the the sports psychologist, she she was there all the time uh, in Inuels. Uh, there was this funny moment if you remember in the in one of the pressers. Where where Iga didn't know the answer to a question, and then she she turned to to Daria, and then Daria was like, "I don't know, it's your brain. Like you you tell them." Like, yeah, the like, question was something like, "How was I feeling before the Rome final?" or something like yeah. that. Like, I don't know how was I feeling before the Rome final. And she was like, "I'm not helping you with that." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 a very very interesting and and funny teams a uh, team at times, and it it works incredibly well. Like, what can you say? And she's a deserving number two and. And who's going to stop her? I mean, she's won two WTA thousands in a row now for the first mm-hmm. time. And she's won two tournaments uh, in a row and two big ones. And then she had Rome and she had Paris. Like, she's, I mean, she's she's the one at this moment. 
No, it was really actually a pretty stable moment for women's tennis. It felt like, you know, this was a tournament that offered a good amount of continuity in terms of storylines. You have the Doha champion coming into Inuels and keeping the run going, winning back-to-back 1,000. This moves to number two. You had also, she was number three seed. You had number five and six also in the semifinals and defending champion Bedosa at five and then Maria Sakari at six. And then you had Simona Halep, who's on her way back yeah. as a former number one, making the semis and playing well against uh, Shvelka yeah, very. in that semifinal. That was a really good match. Um it felt pretty stable for a WTA tournament of this era. It really did. And maybe we're getting there a bit. Maybe, you know, Iga is the person who's going to be potentially a full-time player who is a, you know, dominant player on tour. That's not been something that we've really had since Serena, you know, many years ago. Arguably in terms of, like, full-time since, like, I don't know, 2013. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she started scaling back. Even when she won her Serena Slam, she wasn't playing a, a, the biggest schedule of tournaments. Mm-hmm. Uh, as she was in 2015, she was playing. She certainly was playing Indy Wells in Miami and stuff like that, and Cincy, um, a decent mm-hmm. number of tournaments, but not nothing too extreme. But yeah, but I, I think Shantek's absolutely there as as someone who you know can step up and be the player to beat at tournaments consistently and not and not flame out early. It's just something we haven't seen. It can be done. It will be done again, and maybe. We're getting to that time. Mm-hmm. I do hope. I don't know what you know is going on with with Ash Barty currently exactly. And she she made reference in her statement pulling out that she hadn't uh, had time to recover physically from the Australian Open. This was a confusing statement, honestly, because she won the Australian Open so easily, uh, mm-hmm. not dropping a set, not officially physically daunting, carrying no injuries we knew of. And it's possible that she just felt like she hadn't had time to get back in shape. You know, she she taken some time off, well deserved and. Mm-hmm. That wasn't what she said, but that's a more understandable reading of it. And she had this Fed Cup tie coming up in uh, April at home, which I think is probably very important to her. That actually wound up getting canceled because of Russia getting thrown out of the uh, Fed Cup, not Billie Jean King Cup, I should call it now. Got to get used to saying that. Uh, that Australia moved up a bracket, mm-hmm. and, or Slovakia, yep. whoever their opponent. Some, it's not happening anyway. So we'll see what kind of schedule Barty plays. It'll be interesting to see if she, like takes a wild card into Stuttgart or maybe even Charleston or something um, to, that seems unlikely, Charleston, but like, you know, to start playing again, or if she's going to really pair it back as well and give more space for someone like Shviantek to pick up points because Barty is defending champion Miami, not going to defend that, defending champion Stuttgart, not currently on the entry list for that tournament, I don't believe, uh, and then final of Madrid. So she's got a lot of points coming off pretty soon, Barty. Um, and there is space for Shviantek with the good run. Shviantek is playing Charleston. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if she's playing Stuttgart or not. Maybe uh, to uh, you have to make a run here. So I, it's interesting it's, to see it. Yeah, it's funny because going into Inuels, we were talking about Krejcikova and Kontaveit as the the two players mm-hmm. who were going to snatch the number one potentially. And now coming out, it's it's Iga who is in the best position to do so. No. Um, yeah, Krejcikova rough break. She was people don't know because I saw people some people being critical of her for withdrawing late. But Krejcikova was on site at, at Indian Wells. And practicing, like mm-hmm. I saw her hit on center court, and actually she looked okay, um, mm-hmm. but obviously something was not right with with the elbow. She, but she did go. It was not remotely comparable to Djokovic, for example. She, she um, was a top seed. She was a top seed, and she was there, willing to play, and just decided she she couldn't after after injury issues. Um, she's played a ton of tennis, yeah, in the past you know year and a half uh, to get up to where she is now. So and singles and doubles. So some physical strain is is sadly not a surprise at all for her. Uh, mm-hmm. Hopefully she can she recover. She's in the draw for for Miami. Hopefully she uh, plays there and is back, is back on tour. Good yeah. To see, uh, Maria Sakari, who's the runner up in in New Orleans. Also want to talk about her. We saw her 
uh, after the Tyree Tens event, as Courtney said, and she's confirmed, so we can say this now, housing uh, two double-doubles at, in, at In-N-Out Burger uh, by herself. Absolutely championly stuff. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and she's uh, and she was like, I played for two hours today. We're like, Marie, you played three tie breaks. <laughs> like, you know, not, not quite two hours, but she obviously has the metabolism for her. If you look at her, she's, she's not, uh, you know, exactly uh, anything but statue of, of, of Greek... Uh, goddess athleticism uh mm-hmm. yeah sakari what her upside what do you think it is i mean she's up to number three now which is obviously a great ranking um there's not a reputation for being the best you know big match closer player though at this point i mean she had a, a really poor record in semifinals i think she had something what like lost only won like two of her previous 14 semifinals before her win over bedosa that's that's not good and and she only has one title to her name in her career in rabat um and those are things you can hold on to, but obviously, you know, two Grand Slam semifinals last year in French Open and, and U.S. Open, number three in the world now. I, I, her game is she's a little bit more of a counterpuncher um, by mm. by default. I think uh, is her natural sort of way because she, she's so athletic and she can make matches physical really well. Uh, but what what do you think is sort of her upside? Can she be someone to say you know win the French Open? And, you know, maybe get to uh, number one herself. I mean, she's certainly not that far behind Shviantek. And she's older. And she talks about herself being older a lot. Like a, Yeah, that's say. interesting, right? That she mentions Shvi- her age very, very long, very often. Yeah. yeah. And, she's been, and she is old, markedly older than Shviantek. Uh, is only 20 still, which is worth remembering. Um, but uh, she's 26. She's not that, you know, not like she's mm-hmm. in her dotage, as Mary Carolla would say, <laughs> to use Mary Carolla's phrase. <laughs> Uh, as day, Carolyn Pliskova just turned 30, by the way, and also coincidentally, so did her, her sister. Um, so what do you, uh, what do you make of, uh, of Sakari and her, her upside and, and what she sort of showed at this tournament? Well, I'd like to point out that she was really just a couple of centimeters away from reaching the Roland Garros final last yeah. year. We shouldn't forget that. Like, so to say that she's not been getting over the semis, uh, kind of barrier. Okay. I agree. But. But she's been a little bit unlucky at times. Um, mm-hmm. So she, she she was ready to reach a Grand Slam final last year. We saw that. Then she reached the semis in at the U.S. Open, which was maybe not as close for her to reach the final, but she was there. So she's giving herself a, a ton of chances. But this maybe in any Wells this week to really do it in a big tournament. I mean, we could see it uh, in her reaction. She was so, so emotional when she did it. Eventually, there was this big release, which maybe subconsciously then made her not play her best in the final because she already felt that she had reached something mm-hmm. that she that she had trouble reaching before um so i mean she's such a such an incredibly hard worker and she's also improved so much like her serving for example she serves so big for someone who has i mean in height she's quite limited i, I would say mm-hmm. and and to to serve that big and to work on that and to and, and to play the game that she has, as physical as it is, I mean, I'm I'm impressed. And and why not go on? Like maybe this kind of liberates her to to play these big matches better in the future. Yeah, I agree. I I, I think that she certainly deserves to be there. I think results wise, I think she's currently at a level that is very David Ferrerish. I think she's kind of in that sort of mantle right now, where she's someone who very reliably gets deep in tournaments, doesn't lose people she shouldn't lose to but then is not often coming up with the wins in the sort of big late-stage matches. And, and and she's not running into a big three like Ferrer was, but she's still... And she's playing people close, and she's actually coming much closer in a lot of these matches than Ferrer was, because Ferrer would just get mm-hmm. routinely blown off the court 
uh, by the big three. Uh, but that's still obviously a, a great career to be a friend. That's not meaning mm-hmm. that as a, a slur of any kind. Um, but yeah, I think she's just an interesting sort of place where I think it will still take a little bit of a level up for her to step up and, and actually close out a, a big tournament um, and be maybe a little bit more proactive. The same thing we saw with like a, a Wozniacki, you know, or even mm-hmm. a Halep in their career, you know, someone who is can, can get a little bit defensive and Wozniacki certainly much more than Halep on that scale um, and can just be a little easier to beat, you know, when it's in the tight moments of big matches. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're, I think, I think fortune favors the, the brave a lot of times. And, yeah in those situations. Um, I wanted to mention a couple other women's players briefly, just who had good events. Uh, Daria Saville, uh, formerly Daria Kafalova, had a great tournament as a qualifier, reaching the fourth round. Lost soccer, but she beat Mertens and Anjabur on the way there. It was, it was a good run for her. Uh, had to pull out, though. Yeah, and then had to pull out after five games against uh, soccer and just said, you know, I was basically cooked after winning, you know, two matches and qualifying and everything and come back from long injury. But she was, it was great to have around. Uh, at the tournament, uh, nice to see her back. Uh, Marketa Vondrosheva uh, also had a good run to the fourth round. Um, played a very late night match in Stadium 2 uh, against uh, Kudermatova. She lost, but she did great. She she beat uh, uh, Nekontovate, who's one of the, who was one of the informed players in a third set tiebreak, uh, and then played very tough against uh, uh, Kudermatova as well. Kudermatova had a good run to the quarters, uh, backing up her final in Doha. She beat uh, Nemesaka very cleanly. Uh, well, I should not say clean that match was not clean. That was a bit of a mess of a match for, for other reasons, but yeah. she was very, very good. I mean, yeah. she was, her level was undeniable in that match in that tournament. For sure. And she's someone to keep an eye on for sure. And, and also pushing up to be in that higher, higher level. Uh, Madison Keys backed up her, her run to the Australian Open semifinals with a nice quarterfinal here, and then got absolutely blitzed by Sviantek, um, mm-hmm. uh, love and one in that match. Uh, which just showed how good Sviantek was when she was... Yeah, mm-hmm. and, what, and then it wasn't even surprising. That was the thing that really shocked me that match. Yeah. I was saying we were at that little, you know, uh, mingle event as that match was starting. And mm-hmm. I was I was telling uh, the media director there, Matt and Tynan, like, this, she's going to she's gonna destroy her. Like, you just wait. She's yeah. going to destroy her. And she did. Yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway, uh, that's that's pretty much the, the women's rep. And, and Simona Halep. Yeah, nice to see her building back. Yeah. Uh, looks, looks like on a fast track to be back in the top... 10 potentially by the end of the year if she keeps this up. Uh, yeah, with a new situation in coaching, right? Yeah. With the whole Muratoglu mm-hmm. uh, background. Yeah. And she she went to an academy for the first time in her career, which is interesting mm-hmm. uh, considering her age uh, at 30, which she likes to point point out herself. Like, I'm 30 now. Like, this is a mm-hmm. new chapter for me. That she's gone, uh, yeah, to, to Patrick's academy and, and, and got a new coach there. Two more. Just other people sort of just who were on upswings to mention. Uh Kerber had a nice tournament, made the made the fourth round, played Shvantec tough uh, in their first tour meeting, uh, three-setter. That was a nice match to watch. And uh, Harriet Dart, another qualifier who made the fourth round, um, had a surprising win over uh, Lena Svitolina and then had a win over the always challenging Kaya Kanepi in the uh, third round before, lo- before losing to Keys. So uh, good one for her. And, and yeah, Allison Risk also was down... What was it? Six love, two love, or six love, three love to to Muguruza? No, six love, two. No, six love, three love oh, to Muguruza before winning. Oh yeah, that match. That was a while. It was a long tournament. That match feels like a yeah. long time ago, but it did happen yeah. at Indian Wells twenty twenty two. Um, I, I guess speaking of that, you were at Indian Wells twenty twenty one. I was not the uh, the fall edition of the tournament. I'm curious, and we can compare it to Rotterdam, obviously, where you've been also this year. This was a tournament that I was struck by how. 
aggressively back to normal parts of it felt like there were just no masks happening most anywhere on the tournament grounds uh, we were required to wear masks when we were in the press conference room with with players which honestly was seemed alarming for the players because they were so not used to seeing masks they were like wait why are you wearing masks we haven't seen this anywhere it was kind mm-hmm. of the reaction i got in some one-on-ones with players like i need a mask now what i haven't needed a mask all week kind mm-hmm. of kind of vibe um and none in the press room i gotta say for me this was sort of a little bit jarring like i was in australia where we wear masks constantly in the press room and uh certainly a lot of other places on the grounds they were still sort of encouraged required uh but there really seems to be a sort of like attitude uh now of like pandemic over let it go we're done Uh, although they still didn't get back the access to the player areas we'd normally had as Mm -hmm. it members uh which is frustrating for for reporting purposes very frustrating hopefully that comes back but yeah i'm curious what you make of sort of the the state of tennis and 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 what it's like being back on on site at tournaments now with with in-person press and a whole lot of stuff pretty back to normal yeah but all the people on site had to be vaccinated we need to mention that i guess yeah for it's yeah for the staff not the players but yes yes except for the players for staff and and fans as well (sighs) yeah um so that explains i guess the no mask policy on the grounds um yeah, Rotterdam was much different, though. We had to wear masks uh, at all times, and there was still a curfew there. So, like, there were two night matches scheduled in Rotterdam. Then the first one would then be with the crowd, and then the, the second match, the crowd had to go. And even, like, mid-match, it could have been required for them to leave. So, Indian Wells was much different, for sure. And yeah. comparing it to October, it was a whole other world because... Back then, we couldn't talk to the players in the press room in person. It was all still virtual. Like we, we would be there, but we wouldn't see the players either. Um, that was that was a thing that got solved now, which was great, obviously, because the quality of the pressers I feel um, rises. The players are more into it significantly. Um, yeah, um, which is good for everyone, I suppose. Um, yeah, no, it's it's it was back to back to the old days in 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 most cases and there were more journalists mm-hmm. as well big turnout yeah yeah we have like our sort of like major like catch-all or like uh you know sort of a, a group chat we have like 20 you know tennis media people who are at the grand slams or whatever and like 11 of them were at indian wells which is a high number mm-hmm. it was a big big turnout of people uh yeah. there uh, so and from all over the world as well so um yeah their, their tournaments are stopping doing remote coverage there's no longer an option more and more there was no video press conference option uh, which can be rough, you know, obviously for people who are far from the tournament, it was a way for no expense to, to portal into a, a press room and get access to people you're covering. Uh, and so losing that completely is, you know, I'm sure people will, some people will miss that. And there will be situations mm-hmm. where like, ah, oh, I wish I could, you know, just you know, zoom into this, I don't know, Charleston. I remember one time when actually uh, I got credentials, because uh, I was actually for the Zverev uh, slate piece where I was... Um, I want to talk to Federer, and Federer was playing in Geneva, so I got Geneva credentials to go talk to Federer about this. And it was, I never would have mm-hmm. gone to Geneva for that thing, but yeah. it was possible to do in this world of remote, <laughs> you know. So I, mm-hmm. I was able to make that sort of that sort of moment. Um, yeah, so, so I, it's not all positive, but it's nice to be be back and to, and to reestablish relationships with people and and hopefully build back some some trust Absolutely. and familiarity. And that that's yeah. for people like um, certainly there are players like uh, Bedosa and. Um, the people I name are Bedosa and and Contivate are the main two, and you could put Alcaraz in this category if you wanted, but he's really new. But like Bedosa and Contivate, 
really had their come-ups into being top 10 players at tournaments I wasn't at. You mm-hmm. know, like, they they really rose almost when I wasn't looking, it feels like, in some ways. And, and Contabay actually did hers a lot away from slams and stuff, too, so hers is a little bit different case. Um, and, and she hasn't, you know, she did a lot of indoor events and... Anyway, and I had met her before, but Bedosa, like, I really feel like I don't know very well. And and, mm-hmm. and she, so she's someone who I'm looking forward to hopefully spending more time with going out of my way to see, you know, go to her pressers and get a sense of her. Because she's obviously someone who's a, a real presence and, and seems to have some staying power. Um, yeah, but it, it, it'll be nice to get even more unshackled uh, in terms of getting into the, uh, the player lounge like normal and just being more casual with it again um, and breaking down these these barriers. So. It's good nice to be back. I wanted to ask about your own beat because I was sitting next to you at Amy oh. Wells, um, seeing you. It, it's always fun, sort of watching someone who's a reporter from a different country who sees this has to see the sport because of their beat through a very different lens. Where you know the most important players on as the tournament starts are Arantxa Rus and uh, Talon Griekspor and uh, our our NCR mascot Bob Vandeslap. What, what, what is it? What was, what is this group like? What is Dutch tennis currently like? And you know, I'm a huge fan of the Rotterdam Twitter accounts saying of, of Holland's got Talon. Amazing. I said it, I yeah. said it so often. Um, Holland's got Talon. They've got, they've got Bob. Um, what, what's this group like to cover it? And what's the sort of, what was it like being there on site covering, covering them in this new sort of role for you as a, as a TV reporter on site? It's great. It's great. Like I'll focus on the boys because Arantxa Roos, she's been around for for quite yeah. a long time. Like so, mm-hmm. so the guys are quite new. For Talon, Holland's got Talon. This was his uh, Masters debut, mm-hmm. so entirely a new world for him. He was looking left and right and being amazed by how beautiful everything is, just the way uh, I suppose every player does when they arrive in Indy Wells for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Bob, let's call. I'll I'll go along with you and by calling him Bob. Um, he was uh he he's different like he's a little bit more to himself um but they're both both great guys both uh, great tennis players um and they're they're like within their little groups they're very good with each other they've played doubles in the past and um it's very interesting to follow their early steps i suppose on 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 the big big stage uh bob's breakthrough obviously everyone i hope knows was uh during the us open last right. year um and yeah i mean there bob is like 42 now in the world so he's gonna be present everywhere and talon as well is approaching the top 50. um so these are players who will be at all the great and the big tournaments we haven't ever discussed him on the on this podcast i don't think before but can you discuss um because holland scott talon what Mm -hmm. uh what talon did last year at the challengers he set a record he set a record. He won eight challengers in a single season. And he had, a, I don't remember the precise number, but it was like 35 match wins in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, a challenger record. And we all know how difficult it is these days to, to win these things. So it was a real uh, accomplishment. Um, so that launched him towards uh, his current spot in the top 100. And this is his first year on the ATP Tour, like his first full year that he plays uh, on the tour. So the challengers are something of the past and they're not super young players. They're 25, 26, so they're they're grown-ups. Um mm-hmm. so an interesting path for for the both of them to kind of reach the same spot in the rankings. Talon through the challengers, Bob through reaching the quarters at the US Open. Um so I mean, look, I'm very happy obviously that there's two good Dutch players to follow. Like what can I say? 
you can say Holland's got talent and just be excited <laughs> about that. I would say it all the time on this. Uh, uh, well, I mean, you not, saw it, them as well. What, it's more interesting for me. Like, what, what did you notice seeing uh, them? So I, I didn't see actually, I didn't see too much of Bob up close to this tournament, but I've certainly seen it before. He had a great win actually over Felix in this tournament. Yeah. So he had a, he had a nice win. Uh, the Canadians play very well in the desert historically, and they get a lot of fans there. So that was actually a pretty seismic upset. Talon had kind of an opposite result, losing to Sam Query, who hadn't won a match since Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Uh, something, some crazy stat like Talon had won like thirty something matches since Query had last won a match. Um, uh, but I like I liked what Talon seemed like a, a pleasant fellow to, to watch. I like watching him. He has a uh, not quite Karatsevian legs, but certainly he's you know a, a, a tree trunky <laughs> boy in terms of the legs. So that, that's uh, it's always inspiring <laughs> in its own ways. Um, and, and yeah, and uh, yeah, it was, it was nice. It was I appreciate that when I was with you. Uh, that Talon was like having a full conversation while hitting the ball in practice with you. That was impressive <laughs> multitasking. I was I was impressed by that. Yeah, and I'm impressed by you by talking here. So thank you very much, uh, David, for your your time. Oh, my here. pleasure. My where pleasure. should people Where should people follow uh, follow you? Uh, I I guess on my Twitter account. Like guys, I'm tr- I'm very bad at Twitter, but I will. It's at Davavaki. Also, we'll, what we'll link does here. that we'll mean again? Um, it's, it's something that I, that I'm not good at. Sorry. But you get I, better. You've gotten all these interviews with people and stuff. I, I mean, know. You're getting all the stars. You should start linking them on your Twitter. Maybe. Do a little, do a little self-promotion. Just, just, yeah. just embrace it. It's not my strength, but I'll try. I'll try. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, with that, thank you very much, David. Good to thank see you. you. Thank you. And thank you also to all of, all of our backers, including our Patreon backers uh, and people listen. We want to thank our Patreon backers. We thank every episode on this show who are the ones at the slam champ level and above who are Susanna W., Sean Mulroy, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Jonathan Weinbaum, Sean Simeon, James Hindle, Antonio Maycumber, Anna Valinder, Timothy Liu, and Ashley Keel, and our GOAT backers, Pam Shriver and J.O.D. Thank you to all of them. Thank you to you, David. Bye, folks. Thank you. Have a good Tasty Tuesday. I decided I should meet him. I decided I should meet him in a proper formal way. So today at 8 when he smiled and said, how are you? I said, fine, and my name's Kristen. And he softly answered, hey. And I said, my name is Kristen. And thank you for the extra And he said his name was Taylor, which provides the inspiration for this 